0: Holiday season. How about that song? That song will make you both want to live life and not live life simultaneously. That's the power that song has. If you work in a grocery store and you hear that song, you don't want to live anymore. But if you're shopping in the mall and there's a Santa Claus nearby and children are sitting on his lap, and that's a weird profession, I'm going to say that now. It's a weird profession. But children are sitting on his lap and he's just enjoying himself, and there's snow outside, and you have a hot chocolate in your hand that you paid $16 for at Starbucks. That's when you love that song. That's when you love it. But, you know, that's how life is. We gotta be grateful. We gotta be thankful. It's Thanksgiving. We gotta be thankful that we paid $16 for hot chocolate. We gotta be thankful that there's weird people out there who are willing to be mall Santas. Because those are important things, both of them. Hot chocolates and Santa Claus. They're necessary this time of year. Thanks for tuning in. I'm glad you're here. You're glad I'm here, I imagine. That's why you hit play. And this week features Dr. Michael Poland. Dr. Michael Poland is a geophysicist with the Cascades Volcano Observatory. And he is the current scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. So he is the man that keeps a close eye on Yellowstone, the supervolcano, sitting beneath the United States of America and making sure that it's not going to just blow up one day, you know? And he educates us on volcanoes. How do we know they're not just going to blow up? What will we see ahead of time? Okay, so many people have a bleak picture on volcanoes. Volcanoes were the first thing I I was interested in probably my whole life. And that's true for every human. Every human is interested in volcanoes first. That's it. We're interested in volcanoes before we can speak. That's just how it works, okay? That's nature. So, don't question that. But anyway, Michael Poland is is a great person to talk to. He has spent his career working on volcanoes. Working to understand them. Working to track them. Working to make sure that the volcanoes that sit beneath a large percentage of the population of America, in some form, I'm not saying the Yellowstone volcano sits beneath everyone, but there's volcanism near to many, many people in this country, and and abroad. And Michael Poland is in charge of making sure that some of those volcanoes, specifically the ones in the United States, are well-behaved, you know? He's like the teacher. And he's making sure that the students, in this case, the volcanoes, stay in their seat and shut their mouths. He is a member of the United States Geological Survey. And he is here today to talk to you, to talk to me, and get some questions answered. Get an understanding of volcanoes. Begin to firmly understand. There's so many things in the world that I don't understand that you don't understand. And that's why we're here, to educate you. To help you along in your quest to, to understand everything. But for now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to do two things. Number one, support the show on Patreon. That's going to be patreon.com slash the state of the universe. Go on there. Give me a few dollars. It's the holiday season after all. Come on. Charitable causes. What better charity can you think of to support than my rent payment? I mean, realistically, what, the Salvation Army? What? I don't know. I can't even think of any others because there's just none that compare to mine, you know? So give me money and also sit down at the dinner table, eat your turkey, eat your cranberry. Don't eat cranberry sauce. Oh, don't eat cranberry sauce. The jello, they literally sell cranberry flavored jello and call it cranberry sauce. If that's not a scam, I don't know what is. So don't buy that stuff, okay? Just don't buy it. Don't support it. Eat corn, mashed potatoes, instant mashed potatoes if you want, you know? I don't know what they are. That's essentially just dandruff. They get a bunch of dudes together, they get dandruff, and they put it in a box. And somehow when you mix dandruff with milk and water, you get potatoes. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me, okay? But that's what they do, and I don't get it. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm grateful. I'm thankful for all of you i got to give thanks. And anyone out there listening to this right now, I give thanks to you. You're amazing. I got some fan mail this week. People messaged me, emailed me, said, hey, I like your show. People I've never heard of from parts of the world I've never heard of. And I love that. And I'm thankful and grateful for that. And so that's what I give thanks for. And I hope that you all have something out there that you can give thanks for. And if you don't, well, message me. Say, Brendan, I'm not thankful for anything. And then I'm going to message you back, and I'm not a suicide hotline, but I'll try to help. That's all I'm going to say. Okay? I hope you enjoy this episode, I hope you learn a lot, and I hope you come back for more. Thank you. Enjoy the holidays. Enjoy your life. You're all great. You're all beautiful people. Hello! everyone welcome back to the state of the universe i thank you for tuning in i i love you whoever you are maybe i don't know michael and i we're we're talking in your ears and michael poland is a is a a fantastic individual michael can you mike rather sorry mike can you give the listeners an introduction into the types of things that you study it doesn't need to be in depth because we'll go in depth but just sort of like a baseline introduction into
1: who you are and what you do Sure. Well, I'm a a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and my field of specialty is actually volcano geodesy. Geodesy is sort of the study of the shape of the earth. So volcano geodesy is a study of the shape of volcanoes and how that shape changes over time, not just shape, but also gravitational fields. So what I spend most of my time thinking about is how volcanoes change and deform and, and have gravity changes and then I try to link that into other uh, volcano monitoring methods to see whether we can understand what's happening beneath the ground.
0: I see. So at a baseline level, the idea is is that if there's movements going on beneath the surface, movements that maybe we can't detect visibly with with the eye or maybe that we can't detect using earthquakes, that... You can in some way infer those those movements, whether it be of, of magma or whether it be of, of geologic plates, you can infer them by the way that the large scale ground sort of changes. Is that is that the idea?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. At a volcano, the, the simplest form of ground deformation is sort of this uh, inflation or deflation pattern. You can imagine if there's some sort of magma reservoir, or water reservoir, or gas reservoir beneath the surface, um, as it pressurizes it inflates like a giant balloon and that creates a pattern of motion on the surface that's not perceptible to the human eye of course but we can measure with really sensitive equipment that might lead us back to this idea that ah, we can see there's a, some sort of subsurface reservoir that's either pressurizing or, or depressurizing or maybe there's a fault that's moving or there's some fluids that are migrating from one place to another.
0: See, it's like Tremors. Do you ever see the movie Tremors? Oh, yeah. That yes, might be I the did. worst movie ever made. But, but you know, on a very baseline level, those tremors are, you could think of them as, you know, um, moving magma. Of course, the, the earth does not move the way that a tremor makes it move. Um, and for those of you who don't know, tremors are not real. So you could take that as your first science lesson of the day. What is it that got you interested in studying volcanoes? Where did that come from?
1: You know, I, when I I think it started when I was a kid. Most of these things probably do. I was four or five years old when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. And I just remember that dominating the headlines. I was in California at the time, so I wasn't directly affected. But it was such an exciting event at a time when, you know, I was just sort of getting interested in the world, I guess. Did um, you have
0: effects with ash all the way in California
1: where you lived at the time? No. No, it was never anything that, that had sort of a, a direct impact on me. But I remember seeing the the newspaper uh, headlines and the photos and watching the, the news about that. And then as I went through elementary school, there were books that were coming out about the event, and we did units on volcanoes because growing up in Northern California, we have volcanoes there as well. And so it was something that was sort of uh, always there. The mountains were really interesting and pretty. And then when Mount St. Helens erupted, there was this sense that oh well they're not just these static mountains they they change they erupt and and I think that's probably the root of my interest in volcanoes.
0: Do you remember what it was like in the in the news in the headlines leading up to that? I know you said you were young you were only four or five but do you remember was there like this sense of impending doom in the media was there the sense that this thing could you know kill tons of people or or was it not taken seriously? What was it
1: like? I I vaguely recall it being more of kind of an an interest story. You know, like this is not something that happens in the mainland U.S. It's not something that we have that much experience with. And that's true because the only volcano eruption that had really happened in the 20th century on the mainland was Lassen in the the 1914 to 1917 time period. You know, it was really round to remember that. So I recall it being the site of it was just very interesting. And I don't know that it was so much impending doom as it was something that just doesn't happen and so it was a, it was a, a news item that that people were, were really stuck on because it was interesting
0: yeah i even remember when i was in you know elementary school which would have been 20 years later after the actual eruption it was still a a very popular topic when you when you learned you know about earth sciences and things of the sort mount st helens always came up i think as a culture we have a real infatuation with natural disasters and Volcanoes are one that a lot of people are drawn to because everyone has this sort of idea in their head that you you don't see it coming, you know. Like even I am at fault, and I'm sure as a as someone who studies this, and we'll talk about this, you definitely can see it coming. But
1: yeah, volcanoes give warning signs, and Mount St Helens back in 1980 did give a, a lot of warning signs.
0: Right, right. But do you think that's a misconception, a very popular one amongst society that these things can just happen?
1: I think for volcanoes, the misconception is that um, every volcanic eruption is going to be completely devastating. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a spectrum of volcanic activity, and the really small-scale stuff is, is far more common than the really huge events. You know, just like earthquakes, you get many, many, many more magnitude ones for every magnitude two, many, many, many more magnitude twos for every magnitude three, and, and so forth. Right. right. We tend to focus on the big one. And exactly. so yeah, when Mount St. Helens uh, began erupting again in 2004, I was actually on the staff of the Cascades Volcano Observatory by then. And, and in many ways, that was sort of like living the dream that I, I get to work on this volcano as it's becoming active. And this is a volcano that really got me thinking about earth science. But there was this sense of the media was, was hovering around it because there was this sense that there was going to be another 1980 style event and it ended up just being some lava flows that kind of filled that uh, eviscerated crater a bit more. And many people around the country, when I when I talked to them, they don't even know Mount St. Helens erupted because it wasn't the huge event. And it didn't quite get the attention that a volcanic eruption in the mainland U.S. may deserve.
0: Right. Now, you spend a lot of your time, um, maybe you'd, you'd say most of your time, studying Yellowstone and the and the volcanoes at Yellowstone. I was in Yellowstone. I I drove out to Wyoming. My wife and I took a road trip last summer to see the eclipse. And in the process we went to like I don't know, some crazy amount of states, like 30 states and and we uh we stayed in Wyoming and Montana for a, a you know, a couple of days. And Yellowstone is one of the most serene places i think i've ever been maybe the most in terms of its just natural beauty and oh
1: yeah
0: it to me what what really stuck out to me was how humbled i felt when i was there i felt like so if there's wolves there there's grizzlies there those Things don't humble me. If I was put in a room with one of those and I had to like fight it, I'm sure I would be humbled very quickly. <laughs> but, but generally, you know, humans, we don't think of, of animals and think of being humbled by them because we have, you know, cars that protect us from them or, or actually, you know, I've seen some bison take out a car too in Yellowstone. So yeah. cars, you know, maybe don't protect you all the way. But you know, we have guns. We have all this technology that sort of separates us from grizzly bears or wolves. But one of the things that I noticed when I was in Yellowstone is that there is something that we cannot defend ourselves against, and that's the earth, the very earth underneath my feet. When I was in Yellowstone, like I realized at any moment, um, and I know, I don't want to again. I don't want to you know give this idea that Yellowstone's just going to blow up and kill everyone but but uh you know at any moment this volcano that i'm standing i'm literally in the caldera of a super volcano mm-hmm. and uh it's humbling because you realize that uh you you have very little power over this object that you're standing on and it sort of controls your destiny in a way and i, I yeah, that touched me very very deep
1: i i think earth science in in general does that that sort of thing i mean the the we tend to think of a lot of earth processes and and this is something that we're taught in in school uh, as being very slow. Um, Sediment is, is gradually eroded from mountains at rates that we'll never be able to really see and transported to the ocean and where it becomes beaches and so forth. And it just happens on time scales that humans will never be able to comprehend. Right. And, And that's true. But then there are these things that, on time scales that matter very much to us volcanic eruptions landslides floods earthquakes so that does put in perspective our sort of insignificance on the, on the planet in terms of, of how however much technology we may have we're still subject to these natural forces
0: yeah and astronomy does very much the same thing where you have these separate time scales right you like uh, people one of the misconceptions that that plagues the way that um People fear Yellowstone just blowing up one day with no warning signs. The same thing occurs with the, when we talk about stellar evolution, the way stars evolve. And, you know, a lot of people get a little disheartened, a little scared, even, a little have a little anxiety when you are educating them, performing outreach, and you tell them that one day the sun will engulf the earth. Now, that's not going to happen for four billion years. But the fact that it can happen and the fact that it likely will happen it it truly scares people it touches like a part of your humanity you realize how helpless you are you realize that there's there's short of you know getting in a space vehicle and driving far away there's nothing that you can do and in a way every earth science has something like that some uncontrollable feature that that humans can't really tame and we we love taming stuff it's our favorite thing to do every single thing in our lives is tamed in some way but there are things that aren't tamed that can't be tamed and and Volcanoes, I think, are very much one of those things.
1: Yeah, we get some uh, a lot of suggestions on how we might want to try to prevent the next big, huge volcanic eruption at Yellowstone. And there's a huge number of reasons why that's not, a, a, not only a good idea, but just not feasible. Um, but it's interesting to me that this is what so much of the focus is on, is that uh, an event that is so incredibly unlikely, and so, uh, so very likely very far off in the future, there's no sign of anything like this happening, is something that people want to focus attention and resources on when there are much more realistic concerns to everyday life. You know, I, I'm far more concerned about my drive into the office every day than I am about a volcanic eruption from, from Yellowstone. And then even in, in earth science, the... Rate of different processes, or the rate at which they occur. You know, I'm I live in the Pacific Northwest. I'm far more concerned about a magnitude nine earthquake off the Oregon Washington coast than I am any sort of eruption in Yellowstone causing any problems. So, right.
0: Yeah, I was uh, when when I was traveling to Yellowstone, I remember seeing a lot of headlines talking about the the increase in seismic activity. Right, we're seeing all these small earthquakes, and we're seeing some. Um, at numbers that are, are much bigger than the average. Is that, is that happening? And what does that indicate?
1: Well, if you were there last summer, so summer 2017, then uh, there was a, a seismic swarm that was occurring at that time. And ultimately, it ended up being the second largest seismic swarm to have ever been measured at Yellowstone. And then only goes back 50 years or so um, that we've been monitoring. The biggest seismic swarm was back in about 85 or so. Um, and so there were you know, about 2,500 or so earthquakes that were located. And the average seismicity in Yellowstone is maybe between 1,500 and 2,500 earthquakes a year. So ultimately 2017 ended up being an up year for earthquakes. But that's not particularly noteworthy. Uh, they, we have down years as well. That's why an average is an average. Yellowstone just happens to be an incredibly active place uh, seismically. And and if you go there, you can understand why. Not only is it all of the hot water that's moving around the surface, but there are mountains there. And where you have mountains, you generally have faults and faults rupture in lots of tiny earthquakes and sometimes really large earthquakes. So wherever you have this sort of dynamic uh, earth with, with mountain ranges and lots of fluids moving around in the subsurface and geysers and hot springs and so forth, you're going to have things like earthquakes and ground deformation. That's that's just sort of, they go hand in hand.
0: Exactly. And and one thing I noticed in terms of, you know, popular media, when it, when I was in Yellowstone last year, and you mentioned there was these swarms of seismic activity that were, you know, above average. One thing I noticed was the connection that people were seeming to make between seismic activity, you know, activity that... that gives us earthquakes here on the surface, and volcanic activity. Are those two things necessarily tied together, or are they separate threats?
1: Um, A little of both. So seismicity is one of our main tools for monitoring volcanic activity anywhere on on the planet. The big eruption in Hawaii this past summer was accompanied by all kinds of earthquakes. Many, many of them, hundreds of them, were, were felt events that rattled communities. So as magma and gas and water move around in the subsurface, they create earthquakes because they're breaking rock. They're stressing the rock. But you can also have, of course, earthquakes in the absence of volcanic activity. And that's one of the things at Yellowstone that gets convolved, um, sometimes incorrectly, that any time there's earthquakes, it means there's a heightened risk of, of volcanic activity. And Yellowstone sits in an area of the western U.S., that is subject to a very intense amount of faulting. The entire Western U.S. is being stretched. And so if you say if you've ever driven across Nevada, for example, you know you're sort of going over a mountain range and then into a valley and then over a mountain range and into a valley. That persists over Nevada, Utah, into Colorado and Wyoming, Arizona. Right. That's because the crust there is being stretched. And so all of those mountain ranges and valleys are bounded by faults. And we see the same sorts of things um, in the Grand Teton area. The Grand Tetons are these huge mountain range because there's a fault right there. And that fault trends north-south, and you can look at it, it trends right up into Yellowstone. There's mountain ranges in that area where there's lots and lots of of faults that are helping those mountains grow. So in the Yellowstone area, you have this combination of processes. It's not just that there's magma there, that there's a lot of hot water, but you're also in a very tectonically active area. Or there's going to be a lot of earthquakes anyway, as mountain building progresses, that's sort of a normal process in the Western U.S.
0: Okay, yes, I wanted to to ask you because when uh, when we talk about Yellowstone, a lot of the things I hear from people, a lot of times I'll hear someone say, "Isn't isn't Yellowstone due for interruption? Isn't Yellowstone you know supposed to blow up any day now?" And I believe the reason that this is so popular is because of the sort of cyclical pattern that we've noticed. Now, again, correlation, we shouldn't say correlation is causation, but can you speak to the sort of like cyclical pattern we're noticing in, in mega eruptions and whether or not you think it's meaningful?
1: Sure. I mean, I mean, the whole it's due or it's overdue thing, we do hear that a lot. And and I think it's it's rather amusing because in many ways, I think that's driven by in some cases, science documentaries. Um, it's hard to watch a, a documentary about a volcanic eruption or an earthquake or something like that and not hear some threatening, it's overdue sort of theme. And there's yes. there's two problems with that at Yellowstone in terms of volcanic eruptions. So first is the whole idea that there's some schedule that it's going to follow. Yellowstone will erupt again when there is enough magma in the subsurface to actually, enough eruptible magma to actually form an eruption. Uh, There's there's a lot of magma in the subsurface, but most of it is solid. Most of it's very crystal rich and not very mobile. So you'd have to remobilize something. You'd have to concentrate a lot of uh, the liquid in one place. And and, and, uh, that's not something that's easy. The other thing you need is pressure to get that magma to the surface. Neither of those conditions seem to be in place right now. The next... Problem is this idea of periodicity uh, in general. E- even if you decide, okay, no, volcanoes do erupt on schedule. Yellowstone's still not overdue. Right. If you go so, back to the the last three big eruptions, they were two point one million years ago, one point three million years ago, and then six hundred and thirty one thousand years ago. And that's an average. And this is an average based on basically two data points, so it's not great. The average is something like forty thousand years. So, so we'd still be a hundred thousand years off. Right, away. we're
0: still a hundred thousand years off and we'll probably kill ourselves by the time that comes yeah. around. You know? And and even
1: if you go back further, then you know if you say, Oh, we need more data points, you know, what was the previous eruption of Yellowstone before the two point one million years ago? It's over four million years ago. So the average even increases more.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of these science documentaries unfortunately they have to in a way they if they want to actually, you know, make revenue and and bring eyes to the screen they sort of have to make these like eerie predictions like we're due you know we're due for for a mega eruption here in the united states i see this a lot with black holes any documentary on black holes there's like this idea that a black hole will just suck you in and and pull you apart if you go anywhere near it But but the truth is that you know a black hole you could you could turn the sun into a black hole right now if you had that power and the earth would be perfectly fine yeah the Earth wouldn't change. We would still go around in orbit now, of course it would get really cold right <laughs> in in eight minutes, once all the photons are dried up and they stop hitting us, uh it would get incredibly cold incredibly quickly, and so we would see changes like that. But in terms of actually getting sucked into the black hole, that's not going to happen and but they almost ha it's the same way in politics in the yeah. way that they have to like hedge their bets on some nonsensical uh, claims. Because the, the nonsensical claims are what bring the eyes and what bring the revenue.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate. I think in, in some ways it really underestimates the interest of people that, that want to take in, in Earth processes or, or, or um, things in astronomy. You don't have to sell it by saying there's doom and gloom. Yellowstone, black holes, they're spectacular enough you know they sell themselves you don't have to throw in a and we're overdue or and you know black holes are going to be the end of us it's a it's an amazing natural process that you don't have to to juice up it's it's spectacular all on its own
0: do you think part of that is just it's easier for people that way it's easier to say that we are due we're overdue for an eruption than to tend to walk someone through the data and and talk to them about how the data maybe isn't uh perfectly accurate and how the data probably isn't representative of us being overdue. Do you think it just comes down to, to making, to the fact that it's, it's easier to say these sort of buzzwords and, and these claims than it is to actually walk people through facts.
1: Yeah. I, I think probably it's easier or you could say maybe it's, it's lazy. Yes. Um, certainly I, lazy. I, I think we see this sort of thing with, with the tabloids constantly. At least I see it with Yellowstone. Uh, it doesn't matter. What information comes out about Yellowstone? Tabloids love to spin it into, and here and it means that you know scientists fear eruption is imminent, which is of course not the point at all of the research that was done or the story that was released or whatnot. But I think aiming for the sort of quick view, the the mouse click, and and so forth, is is in some cases what we're reduced to aiming for that. That you know, oh, gotta tune in to, to this program or that program because they say Yellowstone is going to erupt or black holes are going to consume our, our solar system. It's, yeah. It it and, cheapens it in some ways. And
0: I need to know who they are.
1: I see this yeah, all the right. time.
0: Who who are the scientists? You know, I see this like on on the front of People Magazine or something. Scientists say that Mars could turn into a black hole. Huh? Who <laughs> who are the scientists? Where are they? I'd have never heard that. You know, I talk to people every day. I have not heard that Mars is going to turn into a black hole. It's and you know what's funny is I do it all the time. Like I'll read a paper and then I'll be trying to uh, convey the information in the paper to someone and I say they said, you know? And there's an ex- it's weird because I don't think you should be memorizing the name of every single scientist that you want to sort of claim their work in conversation at the lunch table. You know, that's that's necessary in scientific papers, but I'm not sure that's necessary at the, you know, at the dinner table. But at the same time, I, I really do catch myself doing this a lot. Like, oh, well, they said it's okay if I eat corn, you know? They said it's healthy to take fish oil, stuff like that. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm on the fence about that because I really do hate it. And I think it's a real way to make an argument seem legitimate when, in fact, it's, it's cheap and nonsensical. But I catch myself doing it constantly.
1: Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I find myself doing the same things. I rail against it when – it happens in some field that I happen to be familiar with, and then I do the same thing. Well, you yeah, know, they said that it's okay to, you know, get plenty of sun or or, whatever the, the, the problem du jour might be.
0: Right. Now, now, when we talk about Yellowstone, we would have a really good idea that this, that if it were to erupt, we would have a really good idea, and we would have a good idea far out, right?
1: Yeah. So in order to have this sort of big eruption, and, and keep in mind, not every... Eruption at Yellowstone is big. Most eruptions are lava flows, and that's something that often gets missed in this you know, concern about Yellowstone's going to blow and, and, and kill us all. Is that when Yellowstone erupts, the, the vast majority of eruptions have been lava flows that you wouldn't notice if you weren't you know, right adjacent to it. Right. Um, but all right, let's say it's going to be. Uh, we're worried about only the huge eruptions. In order to get that much magma. Uh, focused and close to the surface enough that it would erupt catastrophically, you're going to have to move a lot of stuff around in the subsurface. There would be earthquakes, there would be ground deformation, there would be gas emissions and thermal activity, the likes of which we've never seen. So when I get emails that say, oh, there's been more geyser activity uh, this year than there has in in past years. And we're talking about a couple of geysers that are more active than they have been in years past, but not so much more active than they were in the 80s or the 60s. I I have to sort of go back and and remind people that the the kinds of changes that we would expect are not a few inches of ground uplift or a few thousands of uh, earthquakes. There would be tens to hundreds of thousands of earthquakes, many of which would be very strong and felt. There would be feet of ground deformation. There would be geysers going off in, in numbers that we can't, fathom because the thermal structure of the crust would be changing so drastically as you brought up all this magma very close to the surface so yeah that kind of of eruption would be preceded by all kinds of warning signs that would be pretty easy to detect
0: so if there's some guy out there listening and he's he's ready to storm in your office because his driveway is beginning to crack he shouldn't worry (laughs) because because that is not indicative of a you know when i used to work at a planetarium and we would have this a lot we would have some random guy, always an old guy, always an old guy. I don't know why it's always an old guy, but it is. He would bring in a rock that he found outside and he would want us to make sure it's not a meteorite. And I was like, come on, not everything has, you know, he'd say he'd see a shooting star the night before and then he'd wake up and there's a new rock in his driveway and he would bring it in. He wants to make sure it's not a meteorite. That happened very frequently, very frequently. Do you get stuff like that in the world of, of, of volcanism and geology? Do you get people who, to email you all sorts of, of kooky ideas. And I have people that, uh, email me, you know, like books, like 120 page books that they wrote on, on new formulations of gravity. Now, of course, they're not written by people who actually understand what we know about gravity. They're written by people who, who, you know, try to, I had, um, I had one guy reach out to me and he, um, he was saying that gravity, in fact, doesn't exist. And what we're, the reason we're actually being held to the ground is not because there's a, a force pulling us down, but instead because in the atmosphere, there's an electromagnetic force that's pushing us down. And so, you know, do you get stuff like this
1: in your inbox? Sure, all the time. Um, lots of ideas about uh, how Yellowstone works or how a, a certain thing may be interpreted. And in many cases, I think they're driven by people that saw something on TV or in the news or in the newspaper or online, maybe most frequently online nowadays, and then they notice something that they didn't notice before. So sort of like the person that brings in the rock and thinks it's a meteorite because the day before they saw a shooting star. We A, a recent case was, um, I was very involved in the response to the um, Hawaii eruption this past summer, especially in dealing with uh, media requests and, and uh, requests for information that the public would send in. I'm and not I super...
0: I'm not super aware of, of exactly what happened with the Hawaii eruption. Can you give us a little preface sure. real quick?
1: Yeah, so, so there was a, a very significant event that happened in, in Hawaii this summer. In fact, it's the most uh, consequential volcanic event to have happened uh, in Hawaii in hundreds of years. Uh, it's on par with the St. Helens 1980 eruption in terms of scientifically what this is going to teach us about volcanoes. There was a really significant outpouring of lava on the flank of the volcano. So magma traveled from the summit of the volcano, of Kilauea volcano, underground for nearly 30 miles before erupting from a series of fissures. And that eruption was basically right in a subdivision. And it took out several other subdivisions and miles of roads. Ultimately, it destroyed 700 homes and also some really significant Cultural sites uh, tide pools, coastal areas hot springs that had been used and remembered by generations of people that had, had lived there. At the same time this outpouring of lava drew a, a large volume of magma away from the summit storage reservoir so the summit actually collapsed in places it dropped by 1500 feet or so. What? fifteen? Um, oh my. There's a huge new hole at the summit of Kīlauea that drop down was accompanied by 60 uh, odd magnitude five earthquakes that just rattled the community up there constantly. There were some small ash explosions. It was a major event that finally more or less ended in in August. And it certainly concerned residents um, all throughout that part of the island uh, because they were feeling these earthquakes and seeing these effects. And then we had a lot of questions come in from people that were not living on the island that wanted to know what was happening, and and uh, and they had I, some people just wanted information, some people had ideas about what might be happening, right? and a lot of people wanted to know, you know, how is it going to progress? Where is it going to ultimately evolve? Is the whole island going to explode? That that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this one story I, I remember in particular because we debunked a lot of of uh, false claims. Many of them were, were internet rumors that that people then picked up on and, and got concerned about. But uh, one was that uh, there were olivine crystals. Olivine is uh, a very common uh, mineral in the kinds of, of lavas that erupt in Hawaii. It's a green kind of gemstone.
0: I remember olivine. I, I took a geology class freshman year right. of college, and I had to like place the minerals in different – yeah, I remember olivine.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very nice colored green um, uh, gem depending on how – Pure, you can get it. And somebody found a bunch of it in their driveway, their gravel driveway, that lived in, in Hawaii, that was maybe a few miles away from the eruption site. And they thought, ah, it must be raining olivine.
0: That's a natural and, thought, right? I mean, that comes
1: to the brain every day. Well, and of course, they, they were hearing about the eruption, right. they were seeing the evidence and smelling the gas and, uh-huh. and feeling the earthquakes. And my take on this had always been, well, you know the olivine is there. It's it's in all of the rocks that it erupted from as part of Hawaiian lava flows, and then you crush it up and you make it into your gravel driveway or whatnot. And sure, there's going to be little green crystals that are part of the, the aggregate. So my take had always been, I don't think it's raining out of any plume. It's just that you've never noticed it before. And right, right. This this sort of you know, became viral, took on a life of its own. It's raining gemstones in Hawaii. And of course, um, very quickly, it was debunked by the geologists that were on site there. All of you, it's not raining out of the sky. This is just one of those things that you've never noticed before. But now that you're aware of it, now that you're thinking about this, you're you're sort of more attuned to looking at these kinds of things and you notice them and you think they're new. And in fact, that rock that you think maybe is a meteorite has been there all along.
0: Right, yeah, this, that is a very common thing. That is a very, where we, we sort of, we don't notice something until something else in our life changes. One time I had someone tell me that, uh, they don't like to use the microwave because their grandmother told them that whenever they use the microwave, it rained for a couple of days. <laughs> and, um, and, um, you know, if you think about this, the, the grandmother, maybe, you know, living in the, in the 30s or 40s, I don't know when a microwave is invented, do you?
1: Oh, 50s or something, wasn't okay, it?
0: Okay, yeah, so she's living when the, you know, the microwave is invented and she just starts using this thing and at the time it it was probably literally irradiating her, right? When they first came <laughs> up with this thing, it probably wasn't perfect. Um and so maybe, you know, she buys this new device that microwaves food and it seems like magic because all of a sudden, you know, you don't have to use an oven, you put your food in this device and then all of a sudden your food is hot in 30 seconds. Pretty cool. And then all of a sudden you start to notice that it's raining outside every time you use your microwave. Is it a coincidence? Absolutely, it's a coincidence. But it, it's something that the human brain picks up on. We're pattern-oriented people. We love patterns. And so it's only natural for us to, to you know, assume that when we use the microwave, it's going to rain for a few days.
1: I think this idea that humans look for patterns is a really good one. And we've heard it uh, quite a lot over this past summer. You know, the eruption in Hawaii got a lot of people in tune to volcanic activity. And then there was also uh, an eruption in Central America that killed uh, many people. There were eruptions in in Bali and Indonesia that were in the news. And because we look for patterns, people started to think, Ah, maybe there's an uptick in volcanic activity or seismic activity around the planet. And that's really just a perception based on a limited amount of information that's coming in mostly from the Internet and, and news media. And if you back away and you look at global volcanic activity, global earthquake activity, there's really no difference in what we're seeing now versus what we saw, say, a few years ago. And the average is the average, and it's it's not that different this year than, than any other year. But without all of that information, because we tend to look for patterns, and I'm, I'm the same way. I look for patterns in, in everything, but if you don't have all that information you can jump to conclusions that really aren't supported by the bulk of the data. It's, exactly. It's just a, an aspect of humanity.
0: This is why I think it's so important to listen to X. We're very much in a culture these days, I notice, that um, everyone thinks with the invention of the internet that they know more than they actually know. And in, in a sense, they do. If your cell phone is a part of you and you know how to adequately use it to accrue information then you are probably more knowledgeable than you used to be because you do have that sort of data bank sitting in your pocket at all hours but you cannot make connections and and draw lines between dots of data the way that someone who spent their career studying this can and so that's one thing that I I do notice is we're in a we're in an expert denying culture and it's really important for someone who's scared of volcanoes to Come to Mike Poland and listen, and actually take in the things that he's saying as truth. Because although you know this is science and we're learning every day, that doesn't mean that everything we say is false. That doesn't mean we don't know anything. We know a hell of a lot of things, and it's important that you don't draw your own conclusions when it comes to science. Just because you you use the guys that scientists don't know the answer yet. Because that's true, we don't know the answer yet, but we know the answer much more closely than someone who doesn't study this does.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right, um, in, in that there's a lot of competing information out there, and um, you know, there are people that have studied certain problems, and, and they know a lot about these things, and that, that is an important point. We, do, we don't know everything, we never will, but we do know a heck of a lot about many, many things. I'm always wary though about telling people, you know, I'm an authority on on a subject, you know, Yellowstone or volcanoes or, or whatever. Because I know there's a lot of distrust out there and I don't want to sell myself, my organization as having all the answers. So the approach that I often try to take in these situations where I can tell somebody's trying to figure out, you know, all right, there's a somebody on the internet that says one thing and then there's the group of geologists at universities and U S geological survey and and so forth, state geological survey that are saying another, who do I trust? I would like to, to educate these people and say, all right, well, look, why don't you make the decision yourself based on the data? All the data are publicly available and here's how you can interpret it. Here's what deformation data, mean? Here's what seismic data mean. Here are the past archives. And if you're really interested in this, if you're really worried that the sort of activity that's occurring right now might be something that's uh, emblematic of a bigger bigger process, why do you go back and look at past seismic activity and see whether or not what's happening right now is anomalous? And here's the tools to go do that. And in doing that, I feel like there's more ability to gain people's if not trust, at least their respect that you're not trying to just tell them the answer. You're trying to explain how you came to this conclusion and how they can come to the same conclusion as well.
0: You're exactly right. And that's part of the goal of this show. That's why I do this. And I get people on like you who are actively involved in research, in pioneering new ideas. Because here's something that we have in society that I I don't love the people who do science education are often the people not involved in the hard research and so you have ideas being communicated that might not be completely true or that might not be completely verified by people actually doing the studies by people actually doing the research and this is something i did as a science educator uh you know for several years in a planetarium as i would Educate people about these breakthroughs in in science, about this new data we have. And in fact, the new data isn't isn't truly, truly verified to the utmost level. And so it's important to get people who, you know, if I'm talking about pulsars, maybe I should get someone who's literally studying pulsars, writing papers, doing research right now. Because they have an understanding of where the field is, of what the big questions are. Better than any, anyone else can, can possibly muster up.
1: Yeah, it's uh, – it's, another aspect of this is when research is sort of finalized. Um, I think there's a, a misperception in many ways that uh, when some result is reported, that's the final word.
0: Right. People, and, yeah, people look at it as like a book report almost. Yeah, and,
1: and, and so you'll occasionally see you know, media um, looking around at scientific conferences – and they'll seize on some interesting result and then report on it. And that's perfectly legitimate. This is an abstract or a presentation of some sort that was accepted and made at a scientific conference. But it misses the, the rest of the scientific process. So there may be a report that there's some new new activity at Yellowstone, for example, or some new insight into how black holes form or whatever that gets reported at a scientific conference, but it ultimately doesn't stand the test of the peer review process and is never published. But because it's seized on by uh, some media outlets that are looking for interesting things to report on, it ends up getting reported and the, the, uh, the, the general public then hears about it this way, even though the scientific community debunks it. It sort of is still part of the, the greater knowledge about a, a certain topic, even though it may have been kind of debunked
0: exactly yes i I agree completely i want to switch gears a second before we started this we were talking off off air and you mentioned that your your first interest is planetary science and i I want to ask you about something sure are you interested in olympus mons and for people who don't know what olympus mons is this is a volcano on mars i i think it's often touted as the largest volcano in our solar system right um Mm -hmm. and this this I think it's a shield volcano. Do you know much yeah. about it? Okay. It's as big as the state of Arizona. For those of you, if you look up, you know, Olympus Mons on Google, a lot of the, a lot of the graphics you'll get will be Olympus Mons being sort of overlaid on top of the state of Arizona. And it's this huge volcano that's at, I believe it's even sticks up out of the lower levels of atmosphere on Mars. And it's an incredibly interesting thing. And I, I'm wondering if you're, you want to study this
1: or if you're interested in it anyway. I certainly am, and I I try to read up on on things like this. You know, I scan the tables of context of various journals when they come out, and and I'll I'll try to read up on on new research results. Um, When I went to to graduate school, I was at an institute that had a fairly big Mars program, and, in fact, a lot of my my friends that were students at the same time studied Mars. So I remember having really stimulating conversations with them about new results into the makeup of Martian crust you know because only in the last few years do we have we, have we even developed an understanding of the composition of Martian rocks based on some of these landers and also some uh, orbiting uh, spacecraft that've been able to to measure compositional variations so it's it's incredibly exciting to to have these pictures of something and we have earth analogs but we haven't seen it get formed, and we don't have some of the really basic information about what kind of rocks make up Olympus Mons. what's interrupted history. Um, so there, there's. It, it's, I find it very interesting that you know, we have this knowledge for Earth because we can go there, we can pick up the rocks, we can delve into the geologic history of a place. It's so much more of a challenge when you're working on another planet, um, and, and it's so much more interesting than when these results start coming out because there's a new mission that's a lander onto the planet or a new orbiter that's gotten a new kind of information. It's a fun thing to follow.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm wondering if there's anything that you can utilize as, as the, in the position you're in, having done research on, on volcanoes your whole life, if there's some, something you can utilize uh, on our next mission to Mars to uh, learn more about Olympus Mons and the way in which it shapes the planet, because I've read I've read. It, I remember reading an article a, a long time ago that, uh, you know, part of the formation of Valles Marineris, as it's called, which is this giant canyon on the on the side of Mars, almost the insi- entire size of the continental United States. It's like the Grand Canyon of all Grand Canyons, the grandest canyon, if you will. And uh, you know, some of that formation may have been caused by literal ripping of the crust due to the formation of the volcanoes that we
1: see on Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, usually the, the Earth analogs are what's used to help us understand uh, these things that are happening on other planets. So, you know, for example, when there was uh, uh, missions to Mars, astronauts were trained in many places on Earth, including Hawaii, to try to understand some of the features they were likely to see um, on, on the moon. Sorry, I say mission to Mars and missions to the moon. Okay,
0: I was like, wait a minute. Do you know something uh, yeah. I don't know?
1: Can't talk about that.
0: This is going to be on every conspiracy theory website now. I want you. To- we have mi- we have <laughs> men on Mars. Yeah.
1: Okay. No, it's on uh, during the, the, the run up to the moon landings. There were lots of astronaut training programs that were conducted in volcanic areas around the U.S., including in Hawaii. So there there have even been some interesting experiments done to prepare for things like missions to Mars Um, on the flanks of some of the Hawaiian volcanoes where uh, they have these sort of groups of of astronauts that are um, made to live in a kind of biodome for six months at a time just to kind of see how life would be um, if you were to send a a long-term mission to Mars or the moon or or wherever. Um, So generally it, it works that we study the earth and then apply what we know of earth to the kind of landforms we see on Mars or so generally, things we see on Earth are used to inform our understanding of what happens on other planets. So we study Hawaiian volcanoes to try to understand how Martian volcanoes might, might work. Uh, and it, it doesn't usually go the other way because we have so little information about volcanoes on Mars. Um, and the processes on Mars are so different. For example, on Earth, we have plate tectonics. On Mars, there's no evidence that they're ever or any, any tectonic plates that were, were moving around. So uh, that's usually the, the, the path that goes, and that's why astronauts studied volcanic areas on Earth before going to the moon. They walked around in Hawaii before checking out the, the moon because hopefully learning something about volcanoes in Hawaii would help them understand something about the textures and the landforms they saw on the moon. But it doesn't always work really well because you've got a place like Io, the moon of Jupiter, where there's active volcanism. And that volcanism is made out of sulfur. It's not the sort of silicic rocks that we typically think of coming out of volcanoes on Earth and probably Mars. So how do you compare that type of volcanism which is happening on Io, which is totally different than anything that's happening on Earth? All of the analogies we have don't really fit. So it's a difficult thing to to take something that's happening on Earth and apply it to other planets, or, or even vice versa.
0: Exactly, and Io is a particularly troubling one because even the volcanism isn't caused necessarily by the same thing. Right on Earth, we have a lot of crustal movements or geologic movements of the of the plates, plate tectonics that that cause a lot of the volcanism we see. I think I'm okay to say that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and in Io, that's not necessarily the case where you have a lot of tidal forces. You have Jupiter that's literally squeezing and compressing the planet as it goes about its orbit and that's causing it to to essentially heat up on the inside
1: so yeah exactly different fundamental sources for the volcanoes on on io versus on earth
0: right now i want to transition up into something we just sort of glanced over earlier but i think it's important for what you do at the yellowstone volcano observatory which is the 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 organization that you're the head of right mm-hmm. yeah. um you you study changes in in the gravitational force at locations on the Earth, and you infer from that changes in in the rock beneath the surface. Can you explain how this is done?
1: Sure. So this is something I'm I'm spending a lot of time thinking about lately, and it's in my opinion anyway. It's incredibly cool. So gravity is something that I'm really interested in personally. I get really excited about research into gravity and volcanoes because. I think it's an underutilized way of trying to understand what the volcano is doing. Uh, And this is because gravity, even though we're taught in high school physics that gravity is a constant and the gravitational acceleration is 9.8 meters per second squared, that's not entirely accurate. It does change based on your distance to the center of the Earth. So if you're at the top of a high mountain, gravity is slightly less than if you're at the, the bottom of a deep valley. And it also changes based on what's beneath your feet. If there's something very dense beneath you, like a, a metal deposit, then gravity would be a little higher than if there's something that's not very dense beneath your feet, like uh, a reservoir of water. So by mapping out the gravitational field, you can get a sense of what the subsurface geology is. Gravity can also change based on what's happening beneath your feet. And this is especially useful at volcanoes. So you can imagine if the ground is inflating like a balloon because magma is starting to accumulate beneath the surface the addition of that magma is adding mass and so that will increase the gravity at that point because there's more mass beneath your feet so see we can, that's very how long has this been being done it's very well, this clever. has actually been, been done since the, the 50s uh, at, at least.
0: Of course, um, we're but, mo- probably much better at it now with much more precise tools and things like well, that Well,
1: actually, a lot of the, the, the instruments we use for monitoring gravity were built in the 60s. There are better ones now, but but the ones that were built in the 60s are, are still very good. And it, uh, in fact, we've got a couple of them that we use in Hawaii. It's
0: it's, it's very interesting. It's ingenious, actually. There's a lot of ingenuity going on in, in the world of science, and this is one example of such. Uh, we have a few sure. questions coming in from our supporters on Patreon that I want to want to ask you about. Um, sure, we'll just we'll just go through a few of them and,
1: and yeah, feel free away.
0: to feel free to expand on them if you will. Uh, have you ever had a situation that that truly scared you in the position you're in? Like I assume they mean it was there some indicator? Was there some data that you received that you were like, oh my, there there might be something serious here?
1: Um, never with with Yellowstone, or never even uh, looking at most volcano data um, I don't recall ever you know sort of walking in in the morning and looking at some data stream and thinking oh no it, it, something's drastically changed um, I've had experiences that were you know a little bit unnerving um, working on volcanoes for, for various reasons but I've never had that sort of moment of impending doom based on some data stream I've seen
0: what was the what was that experience that you're referencing that was startling?
1: I've had a, a couple, in some, you know, working in helicopters where uh, there were sort of sketchy landings or takeoffs where you thought, well, this might be, you know, this, this might not be so good. Um, another time when I was working at Mount St. Helens, it was sort of, I was very young. I was just getting started and we're working on the flank of this volcano and we're not really sure what it's going to do. And I couldn't see into the crater, so I didn't know what was what was happening, so I was, working alone on this instrument and not really knowing what was going on in the crater. And that was a bit unnerving when that eruption was just getting going. Um, there was a time this past summer where I was working at Kilauea and I was dropped off to go pick up an instrument at the summit, right as the the collapse had had gotten started. And we didn't really know what was going to happen there either. So there's those times where it's kind of uncertain. It's not unsafe. Because otherwise we wouldn't be doing these things. But there's an uncertainty in your mind. There's always those "what if" games that play when you when you have time to sort of sit and think about it.
0: Yeah, it, it it would definitely. When you say you couldn't in Mount St Helens, you couldn't see into the into the uh, volcano itself. What what do you see when you look into it? Like what what is well, it like really the movies where you see like this boiling magma?
1: No, um, especially not at, at Mount St. Helens at that time. It was really just the, the crater, and that was going to be the source of any small ash emissions. There had been a number of ash emissions um, prior to the day that I went out and, and went to work on the station. And normally I had been working with someone else. Um, but on this particular day, um, it was just going to be me, and the helicopter was going to leave me at this site. And I just didn't have any clear view of what might be happening. So I thought, if there's a bigger explosion that push, pushes ash over the rim... I'm not going to see it coming until it's over the rim and on its way towards me. So it was just a bit unnerving, not having any view of the source of any potential danger.
0: Um, Right. And when you say ash, you don't just mean that your clothes would get dirty, right? This is probably incredibly hot, possibly life-threatening ash.
1: That that was my sort of thought was, well, if there's a, a, a big enough explosion, what it can do is send up a plume that then collapses under its own weight and then it comes rushing down the sides of the mountain. And those are these extremely dangerous pyroclastic flows, pyroclastic are these kind of flows of of ash that that hug the ground and they're hot and very rich in gas. Um, And so that was, it was not a likely kind of event. It was, it was pretty remote in terms of its probability, but sort of alone on the side of this volcano that you know is erupting and you're not exactly sure what's going to happen and you can't see where the stuff is coming from, your mind can sort of start taking on that worst-case scenario.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, the next question, you we, we kind of touched on this in passing, but we didn't explore it much. Is there something we can do in terms of geoengineering that can prevent
1: eruptions? Not really. And and this is a question that we do get a lot, not only with Yellowstone, but with, with any um, activity. Uh, for example, there was um, a lava flow that was headed down towards uh, a populated area of Kilauea many years ago. And it was this slow march of, of lava. And there were some uh, suggestions that we ought to fire a bunker buster bomb into the, the erupted vent and just blow it up. And, you know, OK, it. it it sort of misses the geologic complexity and realities of of just what these volcanoes look like. You're not just going to bomb something. There are some limited steps that one can take.
0: When you say, to, oh, one second, when you say so, there were suggestions to do that, was that by people in your organization or was that by no, people in the public?
1: No, it was by people in the public. We'd have these community meetings I see. Um, to sort of inform people of what's happening and the progression of lava towards this populated area and then you know, during the question and answer period or, or afterwards we would take one-on-one uh questions people would say well, why don't you just bomb it
0: oh and that's just called being american you know that's our <laughs> answer to most things you know what, what what can we do about this issue bomb it
1: clearly. well certainly the, the the um science fiction uh movie industry would have you believe that a nuclear weapon is the solution to every problem of course yeah uh, it'll seal faults and stop volcanoes from erupting and create Godzilla, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yes. No, I'm, I'm with you. Nuclear weapons to say. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so far in this podcast, we've discovered that there's men on Mars and that nuclear weapons are the solution to everything. Um, yeah. 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 Loose we're, with the tongue. We're but. getting places. We're getting places.
1: Um, there, there are limited things you can do to, to curb the impact of some activity. And in a place like Hawaii, uh, there has been some trial and error with building barriers to try to divert lava flows, uh, and this has been done in other places as well—Iceland, Italy—but um, there are real costs to this. Not only the cost of, say, building a barrier, but then what happens once you divert the lava? Um, there was one case where one person uh, who was threatened by this flow built a barrier that basically would have sent lava into his neighbor's house.
0: That's kind of, that's nice.
1: There's some ethical questions, you know, about about this sort of thing. And and uh, there's also cultural questions uh, in, in places like Hawaii where uh, the volcano has a deep religious significance. And messing with a volcano is, is not something that the community really wants you to do or some parts of the community want you to do. I was so, going to
0: ask you about that, but I felt like I was generalizing the Hawaiians a little too much. I was going to ask you, was there like this spiritual – connection that the hawaiians seem to feel with what's happening naturally because i i I get the feeling from them from the few hawaiian people i know that they're very in tune with with nature and the way that that it ebbs and flows and Mm -hmm. i wondered to what degree people were like ah my house is burning down and to what degree they were like this is we 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 don't own this land you know this land is owned by by the volcano and so we deal with it
1: I think you see the entire spectrum, Um, because in a place like Hawaii, you have, say, recent transplants that may have just moved to the area uh, within the last few years and have no real roots in that community or that culture, and then you have people that are native Hawaiians that understand the culture and are are tied in with the land and and the people, and so the approaches or the reactions are, are very different. You do have... Some people that are, hey, why aren't you doing anything possible to prevent my house from being burned? And then there are others that say, well, you know, Pele gave us this land, and, and Pele can take it. She, it's, it's hers, and we're just guests. So the the reactions really do run the gamut.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I'll, I'll ask you one more question before I cut you loose. Uh, this is an interesting one. If there were to be an eruption. At Yellowstone, some massive scale, full scale eruption that could potentially, you know, harm the lives of, of many people in Wyoming, Montana, and Dakotas, and wherever else. Yeah. Who is in charge of dispersing that information, and and how do they do it, or how can they do it effectively? And actually, yeah. I'd like to add something to this that I'd like to add something to this that wasn't mentioned in the initial question, and that is, how do you do it effectively in a place like? the Dakotas and Wyoming and Montana where everything is so
1: remote? That's a good question. Uh, And we've gotten a lot of experience over the last few years with some of these volcanic disasters, especially in Hawaii, about communication. And especially that there's no one-size-all, fits-all communication style. Some people prefer to have a direct interaction with the people that are monitoring the progress of an eruption. Others want to hear it from trusted civil defense officials on the radio. Others may want to read about it on the internet or watch a video or, or something like that. So the approach that we've developed is to have a, a diverse um, communication approach in that we try to um, hit multiple communication styles so that people can take the form of communication that they're most comfortable with. In the case of uh, some major activity in Yellowstone, Um, we would start almost certainly with the internet because that's where we put up our most up-to-date information. Um, We do a regular monthly update. Um, Basically, around the first of every month, we put out an update of what's happened in the previous month. And if there's any noteworthy activity, we'll do something that's uh, kind of on an as-needed basis. If there's a seismic swarm or a felt earthquake, we'll put an update out that describes what happened. So the chances are we would start that way. Uh, And then as things became more serious, then certainly the media would be taking an interest in this regardless, and there would be many, many interviews. Um, But I think one important thing to to make clear is that uh, it's not a single effort, Um, not at Yellowstone, not really at any place. Um, The USGS part of the mission is to try to understand the geologic processes that are occurring and communicate that information to land managers, and emergency response officials. Um, Occasionally, we get people saying, well, when are you going to evacuate Hawaii or when are you going to evacuate the national park or whatever? That's not our decision. And frankly, you wouldn't want it to be our decision. We aren't experts in land management or social science or, or any of those sorts of fields. We are experts in geology and volcanology. So we try to get as much information as we can and communicate that information to the experts in managing land and natural resources and things like that. But when we're asked questions about what's happening, we try to get that information out in, in as many forms as we can so that we can reach people that maybe are listening to the radio or watching TV or maybe people that are on the internet and wanting to, to get their information that way, whether it's through social media or a website or you know just a, a radio interview. Great. I. I-
0: Appreciate your time, Mike. I thank you for coming on. I thank you my for pleasure. educating the world about what it is that we can study and learn from volcanoes, and more importantly, uh, how we should interpret the data. Um, you're not going to catastrophically die tomorrow if you go to Yellowstone. Um, you know? There's... No, I, I
1: hope I hope people go to Yellowstone because it's. I mean, you said it yourself, it's an incredibly amazing, humbling, dynamic place. It's it might exciting. be my
0: favorite place that I've ever been to on on Earth.
1: It's it's a fantastic. I mean, I can't believe my job is to actually spend time there. Do you spend a lot of time there? Do I I get to spend you know uh, several weeks a year um, typically uh, in Yellowstone, and it's it's wonderful. It's uh, it's an incredible perk. It's there are long days of work, but but man, I I get to work in a a natural laboratory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's indescribable.
0: I will definitely be returning. I think I'll move to that area when I. When I'm with my time here in New York, it's snowing out right now. And and uh, I guess it's probably snowing in Yellowstone too. Yeah. But I can't complain about that. I'm thinking for some reason of California. I don't know what I want. My life's a mess. I'm so confused. I'm just kidding. It's great. It's great. And I got to talk to Mike. Mike, do you want to plug anything before I let you go?
1: Well, if, if people are interested in learning more about Yellowstone, over the past year, we've started uh, a weekly sort of almost newspaper column style thing on our website on the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory website is called Yellowstone Caldera Chronicles. And every week, comes out every Monday, we try to talk about something new. Um, Sometimes it's history, sometimes it's current events, sometimes it's uh, some volcanic process that a lot of people have asked us about, a question that, that seems to beg for answers. So if you're interested in of learning more about Yellowstone on a week-to-week basis, um, check it out. It's called Air Chronicles, and just just search for the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory website. You'll find it.
0: There you go. And I'll link that in the description. So wherever you're watching, look down below that, and, and you should be able to find that link. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I love you all. Goodbye.